as we begin and look at the passages under consideration, um, we do need to do this, and I promise I'm not going to reteach what we've already taught. But I need a few minutes to lead into what we're going to discuss because Mark's account shows a tremendous distinction and comparison between the scribes that Jesus just speaks to and about and this poor widow. Now, I know that there's a fine line between review and bringing everyone up to speed of where we are from last time. There's a fine line between that and being redundant and teaching it again. I'm not going to do that. You know, interestingly, though, my dad used to tell me that a person only, only absorbs about a third of what he's told. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's probably why he told me everything three times. I'm not going to do that, but I do have to bring us up to speed. The first thing I want to notice is, is going back to verse 38. And Jesus, the Bible says that he said to them in his teaching. This actually means in the course of his teaching, he said. And what he says is, he says, beware of the scribes. And then he's going to list six things that really go along with these people with regards to their wicked tendencies. And the first thing that he says is they desire to go around in long robes. And we talked about what all that meant. That was different from the normal cloak that an average person would have used. It was also different from the cloak that Jesus would have wore, which was shorter, and also the disciples. But these that went along in these robes, what they would do is they would go up and down the streets of Jerusalem. And they would be in the garb of these long robes, which simply was how kings dressed and how priests dressed. And they walked up, history tells us, up and down the streets of Jerusalem like they were doing something that was very official. Also, they loved greetings in the marketplaces. Now, this phrase actually means greetings here. It's translated in the King James. It's translated salutations. And what that is, that is long, wordy, or worldly, or titles of honor. Now picture this. It's kind of like a person that gets a PhD and demands that everybody calls him doctor. Now I understand about being called doctor in the professional world, but it'd be kind of like this. What if I had a PhD and I wanted my brothers and sisters in Christ to call me doctor? No, just call me Frank. Call me brother. You know what they wanted to do though? They wanted the greetings, the salutations, they wanted the titles. And some of those titles were these. Number one, rabbi. A rabbi was a Jewish scholar. They wanted to be called that. Number two, rabboni, which meant master teacher. They wanted that too. Thirdly, even, believe it or not, the word Abba, which is an intimate term for God as we read about in the New Testament. That's what they wanted. Also though, they wanted the best seats in the synagogues. Now, you remember last time we talked about this idea of the best seats in the synagogues. In the synagogue, we're talking about on the Jerusalem end of the building, there was a platform or a stage. And standing on that platform would have been the prayer leader or the scripture reader. You know what they wanted to do? They wanted to be play, placed up here where dignitaries sat, where honored guests sat, and they wanted to sit there facing the audience with their back to the speaker like there's some kind of something important. Jesus says they want the best seats in the synagogues. And finally, the best places at the feasts. You remember when James talked about this very idea? 
He said, really, it's a Christian principle to demand or want the other seat. In fact, James talks about giving the rich person the great seat and then giving the poor person the seat on the floor. And James actually condemned that. The scribes, and the scribes were all about that. They wanted the best places at the feast or best couches. Now, excuse me. that's not the worst part of all. And we're almost finished with our introduction. In verse 40, Jesus says they devour widows' houses. Now, we don't know. Now, keep that in mind about widows' houses, please, as we go further in our study. We don't know exactly what all was in place other than this. Somehow, some way, they exploited the generosity of widows. I'm going to tell you, it takes a special person, I guess, uh, and I say that very lightly, and I say that uh, in a very negative way, to take advantage of a widow. This was a person, though, the scribes sought after. They did that, and you know what they did? And for a pretense, they made long prayers. In other words, in order to gain influence among these poor widows, they would pray long, long prayers. And you remember what I said about long prayers. There's a difference between somebody praying a long prayer because they really have a lot to say, and what they say is from the heart and it's going to God, or in a public assembly, it's to cover what everyone would need or whatever in that prayer so they can say amen too. There's a big difference between somebody that words a long prayer because of that and somebody else that words a long prayer because they want to be heard for their much speaking. Jesus condemned that guy. In 1990, well, actually it would have been in the 80s still when I was at Cal Poly. Some of you may have heard me give this illustration years ago. I, I did years ago. But I was in the ag department. That was my major, agricultural business management. And every Monday at the ag building, there was all these students that would gather out there and they'd hold hands. I'm telling you, Monday morning around the ag building was really busy. There was all kinds of people there. And it's interesting, they chose 8 a.m. on Monday mornings. You know what they would do? They'd go out there and they'd hold hands and they would pray. And everybody that drove by, oh, look, look at those Christians over there praying. Now, we don't ever want to be ashamed of praying to God when other people are looking at us. That's not the point. But the point is, if you do something just to be seen of men, Jesus said, you have your reward. What's the reward? The pat on the back. Oh, look at this fellow over here. What a Christian he must be. That's the point. You know what these scribes wanted to do? To gain influence so they could take advantage of these precious widows, they would word long prayers. In fact, these two things go together. Scholars would tell us that devouring widows' houses and making long prayers went together. In fact, the Amplified Bible says, who devour widows' houses and to cover it up, they made long prayers. Now, that brings us to verse, or this last phrase in this verse, verse 40. These will receive greater condemnation. Now, we understand this. There's not all kinds of different sentences I don't think there's different kinds of reward either. I think if I make heaven, I think what Peter said is true. I'm not going to barely squeak in, and I'm not going to be a street sweeper in heaven, although I'd take it. I'd take it 
If that was my only shot, I'd take it. That's not going to happen. If I barely squeak in, I'll take it. But that's not going to happen either. Because Peter says that when you make heaven, it's an abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom. I don't know how else to put that other than the fact we're going to blow the doors off when we go in. So if I make heaven abundant entrance into the everlasting kingdom, and there won't be any difference in reward that I will get that anybody else will get that makes heaven, right? The flip side. There's not degrees of punishment in hell either. So that's not what he's talking about. The greater condemnation is the assessment that the judge, which is Jesus, will place on what they were guilty of. In other words, they're still going to be lost, but he places a greater assessment and a greater sin on those that did this horrible thing. Taking advantage of these precious widows. And that brings us to verse 41. And that brings us to our lesson. There's a clear distinction between religious hypocrisy and the greed of the scribes and the true wholehearted devotion to God by this unnamed widow. Jesus shows by example, too, how poor widows should be treated. They're to be helped and praised when praise is in order rather than exploited and abused. And you know what? This is not the title of our sermon. And maybe someday I'll preach it talking about what a widow indeed really means. In the King James, it talks about widows indeed or truly widows in the New King James. I'll just say this in passing. We'll not go any further. The Bible even says that the treasury or the contribution or what we have at the collection, that money is for widows too, but not just any widow. It's talking about widows and needy saints and it's talking about furthering the gospel, the work of the church, and all of that. There's a difference between someone that has lost their spouse who becomes a widow and somebody that is indeed a widow or a widow indeed. And Paul, writing to Timothy, gave the criteria. I'll just give you a few. She's got to be over 60. She's got to have no family. She's got to have no one to help take care of her. It's got to exhaust all of that. And by the way, we exhaust our family when somebody's in need in the family before we ever go to the church to help the needy saints. So there's a whole list of things that a widow falls into that, that category or criteria. What I'm saying is this. We take care of widows. We don't steal from them. We don't exploit them. We don't do what these people did. Now picture this. All of a sudden in verse 41... Jesus sat opposite the treasury. Now, I want you to notice this right here. In this area right here, Jesus has just spent where the, where the number 12 is. Jesus has just spent all this time. This is the court of the Gentiles. And incidentally, these are those uh, royal porticos. It's just a picture of that in that picture there. But Jesus had been out here in the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place that the Gentiles could go. But now it was time, his teaching was done, his enemies had taken off, and that's over with. And it was time for Jesus to cross through this barrier here, which, by the way, is where the beautiful gate was, or the gate beautiful. And here there was a short marble wall, and Jesus crossed, and he went into the inner sanctum, or the precinct, uh, the, uh, the area where uh, Jews, uh, Gentiles, excuse me, Gentiles could not go. Precinct, that's the word I was looking for. He entered the precinct where Gentiles could not go. 
And that's this area right here. And it was called the court of women. Now, all of a sudden, as he enters that area, he sits on some sort of bench and he views the treasury. The word treasury is a compound word that comes from these two words. One is Gaza and it's Persian for treasure. And the other word means to guard or safeguard. So the word refers to a receptacle into the treasures or gifts that could be dropped in safely kept. Now, according to the Mishnah, there was 13 trumpet-shaped containers that were placed around the wall in the court of women. And you know what? They were for all different reasons. And they were distinguished by a Hebrew letter. For example, one perhaps would be for sacrifices for the temple. One would be for oil that would be purchased. One for wood that would be purchased. One for this, that, or the other. Incense, I have read, was for another purpose. And what people would do is they would come into the court of women around the wall and these trumpet-shaped containers, they would drop their money in. And you know what's interesting about that? Jesus is viewing or watching the money that's going in. The contributions for the temple. And notice what it says. He saw how people, he saw how people put money in the treasury. Now, do you remember when Jesus was talking about your, our giving in the Sermon on the Mount? He was talking about giving. I think this is really interesting because I didn't know until studying this this last week that they were trumpet-shaped containers that people put money in. I didn't know that. I now know that. Okay? When Jesus says, don't sound your trumpet or don't blow your horn when you do your giving, do you know what a lot of the rich people actually did? This is amazing to me. Not only did they come and put, as we noticed here, put their money inside those trumpet-shaped containers, they would even bring with them, oftentimes, a trumpeteer. And that guy would stand there and blast that trumpet so everybody can look and see what the rich guy put in. And no doubt, Jesus says, don't sound your horn when you do your giving. Don't blow your horn. Don't do that. And Jesus is sitting here. And by the way, this right here would have been the treasury area where number 10 is right there. And he's sitting on a mar perhaps a marble bench. We don't know. And he sees this. And he saw how people put money into the treasury. And you know, Hendrickson said this. In a sense, the Lord's been doing that ever since. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But how do we give? So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Here's another one. In Hebrews 4 and 13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him in whom we must give an account. Now going back to the verse that we just noticed about Jesus witnessing how people put money into the treasury. The word money there actually means copper or brass and becomes a general word for all of money. 
It is probably, though, used literally here because very few scholars would say, very few would have given silver. So Jesus is sitting there opposite the treasury, watching people put stuff in there, and all of a sudden he notices some that are rich. And he notices that they put in much. They put in large sums. Now, picture this. It's Passover time. Okay? It's Passover time. Thousands of pilgrims would have journeyed to Jerusalem. Among the thousands that journeyed to Jerusalem, there would have been oftentimes many wealthy people too. Now I'm going to tell you, if you only give because of what you get in return, the gift is worthless. And if you only get or give because you want something to be credited to you by way of getting some sort of praise or credit, then the gift is also worthless. Jesus is sitting there and he sees many who were rich and they put in a whole lot. Liberal contributions of that. But then there was one poor little widow and she came. And Mark's account, it shows a sharp contrast between the rich, possibly of whom were among the scribes, that either devoured widows' houses, or this poor woman is there, maybe her house is devoured, either by the scribes or maybe even the circumstances of life. Have you ever stopped to consider that Jesus always, he never missed anything? You know, there are things that sometimes if I was sitting there, maybe I would have missed that. Maybe I would have been carried away with all the hoopla, the rich people blowing the horns and the trumpets and all that. All of a sudden, Jesus is sitting there. He sees this poor widow, and she comes quietly, and she's all alone. She captures the Lord's eye in the midst of all of this, and the Bible says she threw in two mites. Now, how much is that? My whole life, I've talked about Mites. My whole life I've talked about a widow's mites, for example. If she is a widow and she gives a little, I refer to her as maybe someone who gave two mites. How many times have we heard the phrase, she gave all she had, or songs that we have sung that deal with two mites? But how much was it? How really little is the amount two mites? Well, first of all, the Bible says, Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which make up a quadrants. In the King James Version, it says a farthing. In, in, uh, the word mite here is the word lepta. And the word lepta is a Greek coin, and it's the smallest of all Greek coins. So we're starting there, right? But Jesus says that all of a sudden, two mites she puts in. And Mark's account says she puts in two mites. Two mites make up a quadrants, which means a quarter. A quarter of what? Quarter of a dollar? No. One quarter of a Roman Asarius. A Roman Asarius is one sixteenth of a denarius. Now, we all know about a denarius, right? The Bible talks about a denarius. A denarius was equivalent to the average daily wage. Somebody works all day and they get a denarius. In fact, when Jesus gave the parable of the vineyard, and he said that he makes a deal, as it were, with people that would come and labor in the vineyard, and each one was promised at the end of the day, regardless of how long they worked, they were all given one penny. That word penny 
is the word for denarius. So we know what that is. A mite is the smallest Greek coin. Two mites are a quadrant, which is one quarter of a Roman Asarius. A Roman Asarius is one sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius is the average daily wage. And by the way, what if we were to do this? What if we were to try to lay it out and compare it to today's means of exchange? What about weights and measures now? What about American money? How much would that have been? Okay, I've got to defer to scholars and historians, so I'm going to do that. But I am told that a denarius today would be worth about 16 to 18 cents. Not very much. Do you see the point? An Asarius is one sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius is 16 to 18 cents. Let's just say 16. So what's that mean? That means an Asarius is about one penny. Okay? It's still less than that. You know why? Because it's a quarter of that. A quadrant of two mites was one quarter of a penny. That's it. You think the amount matters? Here were these rich people putting in a ton of money. You think the amount actually mattered? Jesus says he looked and saw this woman and he's going to teach a lesson to his disciples. How much did she give? She gave about a quarter of a penny in American money. That's all. Notice the next verse. By the way, this is what they would have looked like. This is a picture of what two mites would have looked like. Not, very big, not a very big deal. That's what she put in. But then the next verse, he called his disciples to him. Now, evidently, his disciples were not with him, were not standing there in that proximity. But it was teaching time for Jesus. He calls his disciples to him. There was a very valuable lesson that needed to be learned desperately. And he rivets their attention on the wonderful example of generous or generosity and self-sacrificing love. Now, he says to them, I say assuredly to you. In other words, what I'm about to tell you is extremely important and I need you to pay attention. That's what that means. Assuredly, I say to you, what I'm going to tell you is a lesson that you need to learn. So may I say this too? What we're about to talk about is a lesson that we all need to learn too. This poor woman... This poor widow has put in more than all these who have given to the treasury. She gave a quarter of a penny. Why did Jesus say that? Gould says this, by the way, that the meaning of this verse, where it says that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury, Gould says the meaning is this, that, that, that this woman cast into the treasury... More than all of the others combined. In the eyes of Jesus, she gave more than all the others that put in all these large sums combined. And here's why. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Now, what makes this widow's gift so precious in the Lord's eyes? The rich gave from their abundance, but she gave out of her poverty. In fact, she sacrifices everything. He illustrates Jesus does the standard by which all men should measure their gifts to the Lord. It, it is not the amount of the gift that earns the Lord's approval. 
But it's the spirit of the giver and the sacrifice involved. And I want to make a point, folks, because I'm not just being exclusive to the contribution and our giving. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a sacrificial life. I'm talking about a sacrificial life. If you had to sacrifice a great deal, would you still serve God? We're not just talking about passing the plate around for the contribution or the basket. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something far more than that. Jesus dealt with things far more than that. We're talking about something that she gave all she had. And by the way, that's what it's going to take for you living a godly life and a Christian life. It's going to take all you've got. That's not new. Any coach worth his salt will tell his team, all I want is everything you've got. That is nothing new at all. I don't care. You're the slowest guy on the team, so what? Whatever you are, I want it all. Haven't you ever stopped to consider when Jesus gave the parable of the talents, that's exactly what he was talking about? He was saying, whatever you are, I want all of it. If you're the one talent man, don't bury it. I want it all. If you're the five-talent man, don't bury it. I want it all. Produce ten. And do you see the point? It's not just sacrificing your bank account. It's about sacrificing your life for God. He looked at this poor woman. You know what these guys were doing? They were putting in all the big amounts out of their abundance. They had it left over. No big deal. When she gave what she had, she hurt a little bit. She hurt a lot. And why is that significant? When you give of yourself and you put the Lord and his church first, when you do that, even if, even if, even if you lose your job or you can't work for a particular company because they tell you you can't worship on Sunday morning, when you put your faith and trust in God and you give of yourself with everything you have, what you're saying is, I am willing to sacrifice whatever it takes, and I'm putting my life in the hands of God in both time and eternity. And when I do that, I have given all that I have. And I put it in God's hands. You know what we do, though? I'll tell you what we do, and we all do it. We all do it at some point in time in our life. We start to think by our actions and reactions, we start to think that we have to make those decisions on our own because we know best. The point is, we either trust God and serve him and submit to him with everything that we have or we don't. You can't have it both ways, folks. This poor woman gave everything she had. She wasn't worried one bit about a meal that would come her way. She wasn't worried about anything. She gave all that she had. J.W. McGarvey said this, we are disposed to measure the value of actions quantitatively rather than qualitatively. Moreover, we are better judges of actions than motives and can see the outward conduct much clearer than inward character. But God's word constantly teaches that he looks inward. In the case of the value of the woman's gift, it was measured by quality and not by quantity. In quantity, she gave two mites. In quality, it was the gift of all she had. That's great. Now, here's the thing, folks. I can't look inside, neither can you. I can look inside of me, but I can't look inside of you. God can. 
So we look at things from the outward part, and we can judge that. We can see that. We can judge righteous judgment. We can look at things on the outside. We can make judgments and determinations. We can do that. But all the while, God is looking inside, and that's what he did with this woman. McMillan said this, it is more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. Do you remember when Jesus said it is easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven? Incidentally, there's a whole theory of people out there in the world that try to uh, discredit what Jesus said there. So you know what they say? They said over in Jerusalem there was an area that you would come through into the gates of Jerusalem. It was kind of shaped like the eye of a needle. And uh, he's talking about a camel actually going through that. That's not what he meant. If you look up those words, he's talking about a literal camel going through the, a literal eye of a needle. What he's saying is this. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into heaven. Here's why. McMillan said, it's more difficult for a rich man to enter heaven simply because of the virtual impossibility of his making any real sacrifice and thereby coming to know the devotion of that kind of discipleship. Large gifts out of abundance simply cannot be compared with the total gift of one's poverty. Given everything you got. Okay? I don't want you to walk out of here, though, and misunderstand me. And I don't want you to walk out of here and think, oh, the preacher said we can't make any money. The preacher said we can't make good investments. We can't have any money. I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. And nowhere in the Bible does it say that a rich man will go to hell. It doesn't say that either. But it talks about all of the temptations that a rich person would have. That's what it talks about. Why do you think that the gospel is flourishing in the Philippines when they have nothing? Because when, the more we have, the greater we are at getting derailed from what's important. And we get things out of whack because we got all this stuff. In the words of Uncle Everett, what we need is a good old-fashioned depression, and you just watch the church grow. Well, amen, brother. Yeah. Yeah, Amen. We get derailed and sidetracked. Here's the question. And I'm done with this point. If you had a million dollars, here's the point. If you had a million dollars, how much would the Lord have? That's it. How much would the Lord have? How much of you would the Lord have? One final scholar, and I'm done. Cranfield said this, The gifts of the rich, though large, were easy gifts. The widow's gift, though tiny, meant a real surrender of herself to God and trust in Him, and therefore an honoring of God as God, as the one to whom we belong completely and who is able to care for us. That's what it's about, folks. It's about surrendering ourselves to God and putting God totally in control. Now, if you read Mark's account, guess what happens? It's Tuesday and it's over. And there's nothing else. So if we only read Mark's account, we would find that this ends right here. And the next thing that Mark picks up is the upper room. Okay? But when we go to John's account and Matthew's account, we find that there are several other things that still happened on Tuesday. And Wednesday, as scholars say, seemed to be a down day. Nothing specifically recorded on Wednesday. I don't know if that's true or not. But there's a lot of things in John and Matthew that are not in Mark. 
that still make it Tuesday. And we'll notice a few of those things uh, in a couple lessons going forward. I'm through. I told you it wouldn't be that long. I preached for 32 minutes. That's enough. And I hope something was said that was edifying and encouraging to you a little bit. If there's one lesson to take, please take this. Just take this. Whatever you have, whatever you are, and whatever your circumstances are in your life, the Lord wants every aspect of you. That's what he wants, whatever that is. In the capacity and the role that God has given us to have, whatever that is, men and women, in their role and capacity, and within the talents that they've been given, he wants everything you've got. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.